2: You're listening to The Sound of London, this is Londonist Out Loud, I'm N. Quentin Wolfe, and you've tuned into the third of three shows all about creativity in London. We've heard music, we've read fiction, and this week we're being guided deep into our imaginations, and we are going to be exploring imagined spaces that retain some passing resemblance to London. Thanks for the positive comments that have come in about the Sherlock Holmes, Bonnie McBird edition we ran last week. Uh, one comment that's come in from Mohsin Rashid on that... That episode says, Fiction contaminates our ideas about the world. Science is best. Fiction isn't. I'll cheer up, Mosin. Fiction contaminates our ideas about the world. Have you got any scientific basis for asserting that? i found plenty of truths in fiction, but then my mind was thoroughly corrupted already. Let us transport ourselves by means, both scientific and fictive, to Battersea, where a building within a building awaits...
0: Hey, baby, let me take you down So we'll play some strange sights and the sound You ain't never seen the light before Just a song's through from your front.
2: has been that sort of a day, and I'm delighted to discover that this week's show is going to be recorded sitting down. No stately homes to climb around, no staircases into bascule chambers. I'm on a couch in a theatre. We're south of the river. We're in Battersea at the Battersea Arts Centre. And my guest this week, Seth Creeble, he is the creator of A House Repeated. Hi, Seth. Hello. What is A House
1: Repeated? House of Bridges is a new show we're about to, to open in, in a few weeks' time, and it is a performance game, uh, is the best way I've found to describe it, and it's based on other performance games that I've, I've made before. but It's the newest and biggest in a series.
2: I should say that we were encouraged to set this interview up by one of our staff who absolutely raved about the shows she's seen before of yours. Uh, maybe it would help to understand what you're doing now to get a flavour of what you've done in the past.
1: Uh, I think it actually might be better the other way, way round, um, because this one is such a based on, it's a progression from some of the previous work. Uh, so... Possibly the show that your colleague is talking about is called The Unbuilt Room. And that I've been doing in different versions for about five years. Also a performance game. It is... I have trouble describing this, actually. And I, I, I do need to come up with a better way to do it. Have you ever read those, uh, when you were a kid, those like, choose-your-own-adventure books? Mm. Similar to that, but further, uh, and this is showing my age a little bit, did you ever play an interactive fiction text adventure computer game? Yes, I think I remember doing something like that on a BBC computer. Uh, well, as you can tell from my, my accent, I'm, I can't speak to the BBC computers of your youth. Uh, I know that, that I used to play at my friend's house on his old Apple II. That was just one of those black monitors, green text, sort of, sort of early days personal computers. And these games would describe a place and then give you maybe a few options of where you might go or what you might do, and you had to type in a command. You'll get lamp, go west, that sort of thing. And the show is really a live version of one of those.
2: Now, I understand from somebody who's involved in that world that those text-based games, which are very lo-fi by comparison with the kind of shoot-em-ups and multiplayer games that we've got now, are making something of a cult comeback,
1: that, yeah, they are. They are. They're, they're very popular. Uh, and I can't say, I can't say that I'm, I'm particularly in that world. I'm not a, a writer of interactive fiction. I don't work on the page like that. And nor do I play them particularly every once in a while. But for whatever reason, these games as a kid had a big impact on me. And, and those sorts of things, those books where you could control, to some extent, what happened next. And you had that sense of exploration. That I think, struck a chord very early on, and it continues to influence everything I do.
2: So we've spoken in the past to somebody doing something that vaguely resembles it. It's in the same arena. It's a sort of a detection game. It's it's played in the world, so not necessarily stage-based or even based within the building, but they've got teams roving around trying to solve clues and make sense of things. In terms of gameplay, how would you categorise your vision of the game? Are you seeing it as an architect from within? Are you seeing it as a, a storyteller? Is it, are you an entertainer?
0: Ooh, uh,
1: I don't know what I would label my role. It, it, it's some sort of intersection of a lot of things. I, I'm uh, the author, I'm the host, I'm um, a game player, but maybe in a different role. The, the way that it works is uh, for The Unbuilt Room, the, the, the older game, It's only for six people at a time. We're up to six. And it takes about 20 minutes. And we sit in a room. There is no walking around in the real world. We sit in a room in a circle of chairs. And after a little introduction, uh, I describe a place to one of the people and ask them what they would like to do. They say, go north, get lamp, that sort of thing. Uh, And then I describe the consequence of that action to the next person. And they're all working as a team, controlling one Avatar, Imaginary avatar. There is no... uh, No one is moving around. There's nothing to see in this game. We're not out in the real world. We're not walking around. We're just sitting and we're just talking. It's basically storytelling. So when I say you're in a place like this and it has this sort of room and this quality of light or, or however I describe the place and then I ask, what would you like to do? They say, go west. And then I describe the next place. And thus, as a team, they explore... Uh, a, a place, usually a building, yeah. and and they explore around and come into obstacles which they need to overcome and that sort of thing. And what are you doing during all of this? You're sitting there as well. I'm I'm sitting right with them. I'm no one is up, no one is moving around, and I'm I'm I have to keep the whole world in my head, and they can move around as they like. Well, this feels like a shared psychosis of some sort. I like to think of it as a group conjuring of place, but sure, psychosis, yeah.
2: (laughs) So, now, one of the things I remember very clearly with those old games is that they've got a very marginal built-in sense of humour. The programmer has spotted that the players are likely to use offensive words at some point, so there's a response to to that. But for the most part, they demand that you put the commands in very particular language, and you mustn't deviate. There's no room for fancy language. How particular are you as a computing unit uh,
1: no I'm, I'm quite forgiving and this is one of the nice things because yes that was the real pain about those old uh, games that you had you couldn't say get the lamp you had to say get lamp um, and even though I say there is no improvisation in the the performance it's very very tightly scripted as a person I understand what you're saying so uh, even though i'm I'm nominally playing the role of a computer it's much more like i'm i'm a host or a guy so that's have i understood correctly that's the previous show yes and that format is what the new show is based on but the previous show as, as i said it's been going for about five years and i've done a lot of different versions because the the crucial thing i've not mentioned is usually that show is based on the building that you are sitting in So uh, we're here at Battersea Arts Centre, and I did an unbuilt room here in 2013 as part of a heritage season they had celebrating this building, because this is the old Battersea Town Hall, which has a rich 100-plus year history. 120, I think. And people would come in, they'd pick up their tickets at the box office, they'd have a drink in the bar, then when it was time they'd be led to me in my little room, and the game would start with them back at the box office... And they would then explore through this building. Uh,
2: but now, hold on, let me get clear in my mind. <laughs> at this point, they're sitting in the room with you, but they've started at the box office.
1: Yes, so they're physically sitting with me, and we don't move for 20 minutes. But mentally, in the story, in the game, I am saying, you're in the box office. But of course, this being fiction, I can rewrite the building as I like. I can I can ignore rooms. I can uh, ignore the laws of physics if I want. In in this case, uh, as it was a, a heritage project, I was able to. I, I spent a lot of time working with the archivist here and researching the history of the building, and I inserted scenes and and uh, events from the building's history that then the players would stumble upon or presented obstacles they needed to overcome. So they might happen upon a suffragettes meeting that sort of thing
2: it would be remiss of me not to nudge us a little further down the, the track of the history of this place
1: <laughs> and i'm not the best person to speak about that i'm sorry to say because well, you're not
2: the archivist and yeah, presumably yeah. the archivist would be the the expert here yes. but what uh, what did you take away from that experience in terms of what you
1: learnt? i took away not so much about this place but about this this area of of london because this being the town hall, this was the, the administrative focal point of the area. And so everything happened here. The, the, the basement was used as the bomb shelter uh World War II. Suffragettes had meetings here. I believe the first black mayor of a borough or of a major, uh, I don't know how to describe his name as John Archer, was here. Um, D.H. Lawrence wrote about when he was trying to to, to get out of, of, to get a passport to get out of Britain but you had to attest that you would serve in the military and he wrote this long screed against it that all happened here it, fantastic stuff um, Bertrand Russell gave a, a famous speech in, in, in the the Grand Hall which I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about the state of the Grand Hall right now uh, loads of really interesting things and the building itself is fantastic it is huge it's a warren of rooms and now that it, I, I think it's, uh, since the 80s, it, it's been Battersea Arts Centre, before my time in, in Britain, and it is the greatest place. It's just all given over to arts and and community use, and it's fantastic building and, uh, and community here.
2: So it's building on a heritage that is politically vital, philosophically yes. vital. What about the arts scene here? Is there a particular slant to the way they host the arts?
1: Yes, I'm... I wouldn't want to put words in their mouth, but the slogan here is uh, inventing the future of theatre. And some years ago, some decades ago now, they invented the concept of scratch performance, which is taking an idea in its very early stages and showing it to an audience, contextualised very carefully, and getting feedback from the audience. And they developed a ladder of progression so that artist could say, I have this very very early idea let's let's put it out there and then get feedback and then come back develop it work on it more put it out again and build so they're not just a receiving house and they're not just working with established artists who have fully fledged ideas and 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 good career momentum they're working with artists all up and down the career ladder on new things to nurture new things into life it's a fantastic place
2: it seems terrifically important. You hear about that going on in comedy all the time. Uh, but it's much easier, of course, isn't it, in comedy, because it's just, generally speaking, one person standing there and, and trying stuff out. They've got to be used to some material not working, but with a, a theatre performance, there's often a lot more invested. It sounds as though yours is considerably more portable than the average staged show.
1: Yes, one of the things I'm, I, I do quite like about Unbuilt Room and House Repeated is that I can carry them in a, in a small backpack. Uh, I'm actually performing Unbuilt Room tomorrow and the next day out at the Lakeside Theater in Essex. And I can just hop on a train with a small bag. I have a couple of lights in there. I can do it anywhere because it is just storytelling. I, one time I did a pitch for a producer to demonstrate the show uh, at a cafe at the National Portrait Gallery just round the table. She'd tell me about your show. I'll do it for you. And we did it right there.
2: I realized I'm conscious that we got distracted from talking about a house repeated. We'll of course come to that because that's very largely what we're here to talk <laughs> about. But it sounds very much as though you depend on the participants playing along. And it's always interesting to see what happens when you get somebody in a group who wants to play things differently or maybe who wants to take over in some way, stretch the boundaries.
1: Sure. Uh, in the early days, as I was finding my feet with how to, to do this uh, this sort of game interaction, you'd come across people who... I remember I, I was heckled. Somebody just would not answer or, or they were just pushing and trying to... to just needle me a bit but you're in charge so I can just move along to the next person and that's fine and, and the group, it, they self-police everyone else just gets annoyed with the person who is causing trouble and I, I think there's something I failed to mention is that when I said it was 20 minutes long it's not about 20 minutes long it's 20 minutes long I set a timer at the beginning there is no win or lose it's not really a game in that sort of technical sense it feels like a game but I set a timer and when the timer rings I stand up and say thanks for playing and however much of the imaginary world they have explored that's what they did if they've gotten through all of it there is a way to sort of resolve things early, most groups don't Get through quite all of it in the time. There is always that one room just beyond that door they don't get to, and and that sense of uh, building and frustration is is quite nice because people want to know what 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 did we miss, what did we miss. But that ticking clock in the room usually makes people come round and okay, we need to get on with this. And the because
2: there is an objective they're trying to get to.
1: No, and this is uh, during the, the the introduction. I'm very careful to say just explore see what you can discover so there is no win there is no lose it's just see what you can do and each room in the build in the game has a particular function this room is so you can learn how to move this room then is so you can learn how to interact with the world and as you progress deeper and deeper you start to move around more fluidly and work as a group uh, more smoothly it, it, it's really interesting to watch um and you, you start to zoom around the place, and you 're just exploring because it 's interesting and Then when you do come up against an obstacle, you, you naturally you try to solve that problem why can 't we get past there? We need, we need to go find a thing, and then you find a thing and you bring the thing back, and then that unlocks the door, and on you go.:
2: I think I want to play the part of somebody who is a tougher crowd, somebody who would need some persuading about this as a show, it sounds interesting to me and as I say, other Londonist writers have raved about it but I could imagine uh, somebody out there maybe somebody who's less exposed to this kind of stuff might be listening to what you're saying and thinking that this is money for old rope not to put too fine a point on it a guy talking to them well, who refuses to talk to them for more than 20 minutes and is playing the part of a computer game that's not a show yeah. what are they handing over their admission fee for exactly?
1: well it's fun or it's supposed to be fun and I have done shows in loads of different places There, and there are slightly different versions of the show not uh, not every show can be based on the performance venue I, I should say there is a sort of non cited version in case a venue would like it just for a day there's no point in taking two months to try to research a venue and write a show to do it just for that small amount of time so there is a non cited version that I can take around quickly
2: so you've got a more portable version of this portable show
1: yes yes but the show both in its bespoke and non-sighted versions has been all over the place and played to all sorts of of groups so there's a version for your sort of beard-strokey art theater crowd where we sort of just plunge in because they chose to come. They bought a ticket. Here they are. They're looking for their their capital A art experience for the evening. So we just jump on in. Then there's the family friendly. I'm at a festival and and there's lots of things going on and they kind of rolled up with the kids and we're going to play this game. And that's much more friendly opening and we do a little test to see if we all understand. And uh, in in the... The, the big, the, the theatery version there are moments of breaks where I switch into sort of a more heightened theatrical language to punctuate the experience uh, in the festival version, we don't, we don't do that, uh, I remember I did a version at the science museum and I found myself quoting Dostoevsky at an eight-year-old, and he was looking at me, going, "What?" And I was looking at him, going, thinking, "I know neither of us are having fun doing this." <laughs> uh, and in subsequent versions of the, perhaps we'll remove that in that situation. Um, so it has been lots of places, and it's. I start off by saying we're going to we're going to play a game, and people it's it's carefully structured so people work their way in, and I, I've had. You know, out uh, out in Stratford uh, out, out, out Stratford Circus and I had a couple of you know, young local lads I don't know why they chose to came, come but they were there and they were skeptical at the beginning and by the end they were plotting with the rest of them okay now we have to get the key so that we can go in. And, and they were just right in there trying to solve this I think maybe it's because of the amount of time you invest in imagining the world I say you're in this place what do you want to do I can do anything? Sure, you can do whatever you want. Not everything will elicit a a, a helpful reaction, but you can say whatever you want now. There's no one else here. No one else is watching. You're not on stage. Just, it's up to you. What would you like to do?
2: Tick, 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 tick. Now, if I was a cheap tabloid-style journalist, I know that what I'd do is say, "Well, come on then, let's have a demonstration," and I'd try and try and coax that out. But I can see quite clearly that part of this is the magic that is created by the co-conspiracy among the people yes. there and the mind starting to throw shapes up around you. I'm quite sure that we could come up with a, a fairly weak solution that might vaguely represent what you do, but I don't think it would. Uh, I don't think it would capture it.
1: Uh, no, I've tried, and I still hope to to. Ad- Figure out how to adapt it for radio or podcast, it would hopefully be interesting for you, but for someone listening to this, where we're not sitting in the same place, where we don't have all those sort of mammalian interactions eye contact, I can hear you breathing, we're both right here. Someone's listening, but not able to respond. It's distancing. That, that mediation, I think, really takes the steam right out of it. I've, I've rarely seen something where when you try to record it, it is as flat compared to the real thing as this. The real thing is, even though we're just talking, it is very, very engaging. The recorded thing is such a pale imitation.
2: Uh, I was curious, you mentioned you're from you're stateside, right? Yes. You're, you're American. Mm-hmm. It's something we don't often discuss on the show, but it seems like a majority of people in London aren't from London, <laughs> didn't start out here. Uh, and some of its most passionate celebrators are not born with, uh, in London. Uh, what was your journey to wind up on this couch today? I mean, uh, when I say your journey <laughs> today, I don't mean the number of 43 bus or whatever.
1: Sure. Um, well, I moved... to to england in 2001 uh because my then girlfriend now wife is english
2: where did you start uh
1: actually in well in exeter actually i when i had been visiting during this long distance relationship i had been living we need
2: to go further back than that
1: start start yes pennsylvania Uh which I, i roughly speaking i think of as america's lancashire maybe and fine small town upbringing all very nice and post university, travelled around a lot, lived in Los Angeles and Miami and San Francisco and that's where I was when I met my wife who was on holiday and then we had this long distance relationship thing for a couple of years and that transatlantic particularly west coast America that's a difficult long distance relationship just because of the time difference, not to mention the expense of getting together Uh, and then I was able to move over here. Luckily, I had an Irish grandfather, so I could get a little red passport to go with my little blue passport, so I could come over here, and we could be together without that pressure of either sneaking in and and being illegal and then not being able to work, or the other pressure of getting married just so that I could stay, and we could just kind of let it evolve and happily. Here we are uh, 14 years later and... We live down in Brighton, we have a daughter and the whole thing.
2: So your relationship with London then is um, an injection straight into the uh, the vein when it comes to getting to a big artistic crowd?
1: Oh, I suppose. I, I lived in London for a short time because uh, when I was visiting uh, in that pre-moving period uh, my wife lived in London down southeast kind of broccoli way so that was my first experience of London but we spent a lot of time in the middle where she was working and then we were in Exeter for a while and then back through London but out zone six kind of Kingston for (laughs) silly reasons and then eventually down to Brighton and and Brighton is lovely. And it's a great place to live, and it's handy for London, which is part of its appeal. And I, re- I love London. I don't know that I would want to live here. I love having access to London, to have access to a world city, particularly an old world city. Maybe that's just my my American speaking. <laughs> I like the oldness. Um, but also the newness. There's all this new stuff popping up, sometimes for good or sometimes for ill. Um, but it's wonderful to have access to that. But at this time of life, when I have a family, I think London is would be difficult to live in unless you were loaded. And I am not loaded. <laughs>
2: well, that's, that's interesting. And I guess that might come about with because of some of the issues we've been talking about on this show. Not so very long ago, to do with uh, prices of uh, keeping a roof over your head, but maybe there's something else you've got in your mind as well.
1: No, no, strict, strictly that. And, and I'm glad uh, I don't have to try to live in San Francisco anymore because a similar thing there. Hold up. since my time there it is ridiculously expensive and everyone is moving out and perhaps i'm doing parts of london a disservice i know that parts of the southeast uh, a bit further out that now is more accessible to other bits via the overground which didn't exist when i was was down that way very nice your friends at forest hill you know fantastic uh, and i have no idea what house prices or or rents are in different bits anymore it just always seems ooh london equals expensive
2: on which shocking piece of information we might take a break and a word from our sponsor what are we going to talk about when we come back in the second half
1: talk a bit maybe about this building that we're sitting in and then about house repeated back after this we have teamed up with audible.co.uk to offer you a free audiobook of your choice all you have to do is register for one month free trial to claim your free audiobook there are over 150,000 to choose from The 30 day free trial means you can choose a free audiobook, which is yours to keep whether or not you decide to cancel in the trial period. And there's more good news. If you trialed the service over 12 months ago, the good people at Audible are giving you a chance to get your hands on another audiobook for free. So sign up at www.audible.co.uk forward slash Londonist. The Sound of London.
2: Londonist Out Loud with N. Quentin Wolfe. Listen free every week on your favorite podcast platform. Subscribe via iTunes and get great extra content at Londonist.com. Tweet the show at Londonist Sound and see pictures of all our guests on the Londonist Out Loud stream on Instagram. You're listening to Londonist Out Loud. I'm N. Quentin Wolf, and with me is Seth Creeble and he is... Very much a part. He is an instrumental
1: part of a house-repeated. I've just discovered,
2: though, you're not the only person working
1: on this show. Uh, no, this one is a, a two-hander, two performers. So it's... Are we allowed to say who the other performer uh, is? Sure. The other performer is Zoe Boras. And I, you're laughing at me because, of course, I don't like to say she's my wife because she's actually the proper performer of the two of us. So I I hate for her to be identified just as my wife. Uh, She. So
2: so there's an actor and there's yourself?
1: Pretty much, (laughs) yes. yes, There's the actor and then there's me stumbling along behind her. Uh, But yes, there's two of us in this one. And perhaps now is the time to to talk about a, A House Repeated as we've done the background. This is basically a larger version of the unbuilt room. And it all came about, I I spoke earlier about the the scratch here at at BAC, about what what they do about putting ideas out there and nurturing them and getting feedback. And last autumn, I came to the producers here and said, I would like to experiment with how to make the unbuilt room bigger. Uh, Doing a show for only six people at a time is economic suicide. And it does things that you can't do with bigger shows, because it is just us, just the few of us here working together but I would like to try to expand that to make it more viable uh, to go other places. It, in addition to being difficult to stage uh, from an economic point of view, it's also difficult for some theatres to stage because the front-of-house systems aren't set up to handle something that's only 20 minutes, only for very few people. I've tried to just scale up unbuilt room, and once you get past seven or eight, it, the lag between one person's go and when they get another go they start to to withdraw from the experience so you need to keep it small you need to keep it tight conversely if you have one or two people It's very difficult to do because you don't have that coming together of minds to to sort of mentally create the world together, and you easily get confused as to north-south, or you don't know how to solve this puzzle. You just don't have the extra brain power. So this ideal number, four to six, is, is great. More or fewer suffer in different ways. But I wanted to try to extend the interactivity and this particular aesthetic to bigger audiences. So we did a series of different performances here. There were four, and we tried to we tried different ways to make it bigger. We tried in the dark, uh, so we'd have people who were not playing, but just listening. Uh, and maybe the darkness would help them visualize it better. Uh, we tried a much uh, bigger one with the interactivity scaled way down, so it was just a vote, much more like those choose your own adventure books, where turn to page 7 if you want to do this turn to page 9 if you want to do that it's a binary choice and that's actually spun off into another show of its own which I just did up in, in Edinburgh uh, last month called We This Way and that's cool and fun but it's, it's different it's a different sort of interactivity so the one of those experiments that I've taken forward uh, is, has turned into this a house repeated and it's essentially two teams each playing an unbuilt room style game so the, the seating is traversed, we have two groups facing each other and two performers, and I'll play my game with my team, and Zoe will play her game with her team. And Now, I don't want to give too much of what happens away, but it's all set here in BAC, so they know that they're in the same building, but can they reach each other? So they're exploring against these obstacles, can the two teams find each other? And if they do what happens when they find each other and then further and this is where the creative ethos of this place was really sort of uh built into the dna of this show i also was interested in changing or expanding the role of the audience beyond explorer so for the latter part of this show the audience becomes creator as well
2: Well, you've just you've done a big gesture there, as though I was supposed to understand where that was going. Uh, Uh, What do you mean? I was hoping that was dramatic, and I could just. Oh, that was that was ellipsis, was
1: it? Yes, yes. That's my. uh, I don't want to get into spoilers, and that's my grand teaser gesture.
2: Are these two teams operating necessarily in the same uh, reality of the building, though? Because it's you you mentioned that you can defy some physical principles, Mm -hmm. for example. Is there any saying that your version of the building and Zoe's are the same?
1: And here we get back into that spoilers. Oh,
2: right, well, okay. So
1: perhaps there's a clue in the title. Uh, so
2: well, uh, so the potential here, it seems, is that uh, you could come listening to Battersea Arts Centre and get two Battersea Arts Centres for the price of one, because you're going to be only on one of the teams, <laughs> so you get the, the real one, and then you get another version of it. Uh, bring a friend, and you can enjoy a third.
1: But as you're both sitting in the same room, you will be playing one, and you will be listening to the other team play theirs. So... I guess everyone gets three, and then, later in the game, whatever you as a group make. So the latter part of this new show, where the audience turns creator, this is influenced very, very heavily by Battersea Arts Centre, and what happened here back in March, there was a fire in this building, and the Grand Hall, the whole back half of the building, burned to the ground.
2: Yeah, it's quite spectacular what's going on back there at the moment. I had a look just before we started recording, and the, the two end walls are still there, but they're being held up by various pieces of ironwork. And what's going on in the middle? Nothing.
1: Well, the building was under capital uh, renovation anyway. And the Grand Hall had been refurbished some years ago. It was a, it was a wonderful space and just a, just a lovely space and also a great space for events and theatrical productions. And then there was this fire and now that's gone. So the rest of the building is still undergoing renovation and the Grand Hall, now that will be rebuilt. They've, they've completed the, the salvage work in making it safe. And over this winter, I, I understand they're going to put a temporary roof over the whole thing. And they're now working through the consultation and planning process of what the Grand Hall will be again. And they're using their scratch process that's built into the ethos of this place to, to try to figure that out. They're not just clodding themselves away with some architects to make something they're asking everybody they're inviting artists to take tours of the rubble and to to imagine what it's going to be
2: (laughs) well the symmetry is beautiful yeah which is fantastic this is exactly what you're doing uh, with with your show well
1: i i think they thought of it first but the (laughs) the the offer there when i was writing this show was just too great to say we have this building that needs to be recreated so in addition to me and and zoe creating a building and having the audience explore it then let's all get together and let's make that grand hall new and different every night so the
2: the building potentially if, if anybody in that consultation takes note of the results of what you guys are doing then potentially your imagined version of the building could end up being the actuality
1: uh, yes, but I don't. I don't operate under budgetary constraints. So, or, <laughs> whatever, or, sort of,
2: with, or normal gravitational rules.
1: Indeed, so when they want to put an iceberg on the ceiling and and etc. So, so somehow I don't think it'll be quite what we come up <laughs> with.
2: Uh, This is a particularly interesting feat given. I know you mentioned before we started recording that your memory is um, it doesn't let you go too far back into your past. How do you manage to keep all this location information, all the different ideas that the players of the game are creating? And it must be very similar in some ways to what the people said in the previous performance, in the previous iteration. How do you manage to keep all that straight?
1: That seems to come relatively easily, and then it's just, I've been doing this for five years so I've got a lot of practice the tricky bit is when uh, like tomorrow when I'm out in Essex doing it when I have seven shows in a row and this is the problem with it only being 20 minutes long you need to do multiple multiple shows uh, and that's great except you find yourself in the fifth of seven shows trying to maintain that concentration and someone walks into a room and you think was it this group that had picked up the key to the door or was it the previous group and if you don't maintain concentration, you might move a door to the wrong wall and just completely mess up the game. So there is it is mentally taxing in, in a concentration sort of way, but just with practice you can it's not that difficult to remember everything and then and then it just becomes a cause and effect. If I have the whole world in my head, and it's not the world isn't enormous, if I have the whole world in my head, then I simply say, You're here, what do you want to do? They say go north, okay. Just like a computer would. Okay, now you're here, so it's not that hard. They can, and they can go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth all day long if they like. Hopefully, they don't because that would get boring. But it's it's not that difficult just to to learn cause and effect and your options in place A, and then uh, what that does to get you to place B.
2: There's something that I dislike quite a lot in a lot of interviews, probably the majority of interviews, which is the ego of the interviewer shaping to some degree what's going on. So I'm quite fond of asking questions that could fall flat on their face. Okay. I think that's important to be able to do that. My, my question from that category here is, because it might be no fruit whatsoever, but my, my question from this category would be, in the time after you close your eyes, when you're finished for the day and you're going to sleep, and the moment that sleep arrives, what goes on in your head? For example, are you visualising, are you you fantasising, are you totally switched off, something else, what happens?
1: When I was younger, I had uh, insomnia to some not crippling degree. Uh, That went away as soon as I had a child, because any moment you had for sleep was was eagerly grasped. Uh, But now that my, my daughter is older, I do find myself staring at the ceiling more. Um, I try to think about not not the problems of the day, because that leads to worry and sleeplessness, uh, and I don't try to think about uh, work, about writing a new show, or oh that's a great room, or Ooh, wouldn't it be cool if I did that as a puzzle piece? Uh, because then I'll, I won't get any sleep, either. Perhaps unsurprisingly, I really enjoy playing games, uh, and not computer games. And again, I might be dating myself here, but I'm just a little too old to have really gone down the sort of PlayStation hole. And again, with a family, I just don't have time. And that world seems fascinating. And when I read about a new game or, or do play a little something on my phone, I think, this is amazing. But I just don't... There aren't enough hours in the day. Uh, I, so I, I like board games. And I... I have some friends we get together every so often we play some games and it's a nice social atmosphere but it keeps that sort of game mechanic brain ticking along so when my head hits the pillow usually i put my idle minutes to game design and it's oh wouldn't it be fun if there was a game where you had dice and then you did this and you did that and, and i'm out pretty fast that's absolutely fascinating.
2: <laughs> so you're an inventor in, the, in that uh, short period before you sleep?
1: Well, not to any great uh, <laughs> effect, no. But, <laughs> but yes, I guess it's the, some sort of hazy imaginary state and my way of getting into that halfway dreamy state is yeah, is, is the gears of some kind of interaction... I just want
2: to tie this together slightly more. There's something that's maybe just eluding me, I'm not sure. In both of these scenarios, in, that, in those imaginings that you mentioned and in the performances that we've been talking about, you're a kind of a guide figure. You're also the creator. Mm. But the, it sounds as though the amount of input that, and the amount of freedom that the players have mean that you're a guide rather than a dictator. You don't seem mm-hmm. to be a friendly dictator. Do you play the games? Do you ever submit to the games? rather than exercise a degree of control? Hmm.
1: I suppose I have to, because if I don't do my very carefully prescribed part, the game won't work. And granted, this is something that I invented. I'm the one who put those restrictions in place, but I did that months ago or whenever when I wrote the thing. So in the moment of performance, I have my role to play... Uh, just like the players have their roles to play. So I completely submit to the game because I can't change it or it will all fall apart. It has to go that way. One of the things I've been finding in recent years is, as I'm more comfortable with this mode of of performance, is a bit more freedom in that. I'm not a trained performer. I'm certainly not an actor. I can't, in very broad strokes, I can't pretend to be someone else. But I can do this just through sheer practice, and it's nice to find those moments of freedom where they'll—you never know what the audience is going to say, uh, which is the great bit of it. Just before they come in every time, I think, "Ooh, okay, another one." I get—I get—I'm genuinely enthusiastic. I get to play a game again. This is this is great. People pay me for this, so uh, usually it goes off in the manner that. I think it's going to because we've done this a lot, and but every once in a while someone will throw a complete curveball at you, and you then you have to think on your feet. Oh, I did not ever think someone was going to say do that.
2: Can you dredge up an example?
1: Oh, I knew you were going to ask me. I told you I had a bad memory. Um, there are certain things where you just have a straight back. Back. You know, i what, what would you like to do? Take off my clothes. Okay. You take off your clothes and you just let them do it, because it, it, it does not affect the game. In, in their imagination. <laughs> Ideally, yes. Um, but there are certain times when uh, it's usually with, with the interaction of an object. Uh, they, they figure some use for it that you did not see coming, and then on the spot you have to improvise. Oh, crap. Okay. And hopefully you can make a joke out of that. And make it fun and funny, and not because you don't want to just shut down their creativity, but equally you can't let them short circuit uh, this particular obstacle or whatever, because then the game will start start to crumble. Uh, and this is why it's so difficult to rehearse these things. I immediately after this recording, uh, I have a work in progress sort of open rehearsal. Thing here at BSC with some invited friends and staff members because we can practice saying the script but there is so much interactivity we can guess what the audience is going to respond with and we can rehearse guessing but that in some cases we guess right in some cases it has absolutely no... Relation to what they're actually going to say, and we need to know that before we open (laughs) for real. So we're going to 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 do a practice run uh, today, and I do not know what they're going to do. Uh, The first half of the game, which is largely two parallel unbuilt rooms, I have a good sense of how it's going to go. It's still good to get them to say this because, you know, to try it out because they they might say ooh, uh, I want to pick up that and smash that thing or, or try to, to move this thing. You think, oh, I didn't think that through when I wrote it. Oh, crap, okay, you make your notes. And you try to make the game more foolproof, which is, is good because it gives the players freedom to do whatever they want. You, you're ready. You're ready for it. Uh, you are trying to make the game strong to make it robust. Sounds a lot like parenting. <laughs> There's a lot more improvisation in parenting. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Plus, you don't you don't get lots of rehearsals for each uh, <laughs> each stage.
1: Yeah. perhaps with my, I only have one kid. Perhaps with multiple kids, you <laughs> you get it down. Um, but the second half of the game is the new stuff, is the, the 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 building, and and when the two teams start to interact with each other, and that we have no idea how it's going to go.
2: On which extra ellipsis? It feels like we might <laughs> be drifting towards the close of the show. I do a lot of work with groups, and one of the things I find most delightful because we're working—it's it, writers, and so we're dealing with their text and the, the fruits of their imagination. Um, something that I learned a while ago—it never fails to delight me—is the way you can wrongly judge somebody when they, when you first meet them. They might look particularly severe in some way. But when you get to talk to them and when you get to see what blossoms from their imagination, you see that there's, for example, a great tenderness there or there's a huge recklessness or wildness or it can be the other way around. You can have somebody who seems very chaotic but is beautifully
1: ordered in their thinking. It is interesting to see people playing games because different bits of their personality come out and... Because the only objective that people are given is explore, some people just cannot deal with that. They need to know how to win. Because even though I've said no, nope, they clearly there must be a way to win. They just assume. Uh, a lot of people apologize to me on the way out to say oh, I'm sorry we were so bad, and I'm thinking no, you you were wonderful. Did you have a good time? You did and and you progressed. Quite normally, actually, you went further than the group before you, but it's not a competition, that kind of thing. It's really interesting to see and how they relate to each other. Uh, Does someone try to take control and tell other people what to do? Does somebody just throw a, a, a spanner in the works and say, no, no, I know you all want me to go west, I'm going south. And thus, you all go that way. And I just have to sit there and keep a straight face and not chuckle as they're, sometimes pause the game and fight amongst themselves until they come up with that next, that next command. It, it's very interesting to see the people at play.
2: We're coming very close to the end of our time here and... Anybody who's interested in this sort of thing may well still be with us at this point, listening and intrigued and intending to come. Maybe we could finish on a note preaching to the unconverted, though, because if there's one thing that fills a certain type of theatre-goer with horror, it's the idea of audience participation or becoming personal. I've sometimes found myself in that camp. They might be deterred from coming to the show altogether by discovering that it's a small group of you and that they've got to interact with the performers and so on. What would you say to those guys?
1: In this case, it's a much larger audience and you do not have to uh, interact. You don't have to say a word through the whole show. You can just sit, watch, listen, and that's completely fine. Uh, you can just chat with your neighbor to, to say, no, no, I think we should go north, but you don't have to talk to me, and you don't have to pipe up. You can just watch, and that, that's fine. That's absolutely fine. Or if you want to jump in there a little or indeed a lot and really get stuck into figuring your way through this kind of mental maze, you can do that too.
2: I can hear brows being wiped with the sleeves in relief. Uh, (laughs) A house repeated uh, with Seth Creeble and uh, your your non-partner partner partner Zoe Boras (laughs) is uh, 7th to the 24th of October here at the Battersea Arts Centre. It starts at 8 o'clock in the evening, £12 or £9 for concessions. Have you got a a website of your own?
1: Sethcreeble.com
2: Oh, final delightful piece of information, your name, Creeble.
1: <laughs> yes, apparently it means "creebel" uh, means "tickle" in Dutch. <laughs> that's Thanks very much. Thank you. Aches,
0: fire, no...
2: And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to Mr. Tickle. Thanks too to Mark Barr and Bernie Barkley. Theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea. I'm in Quentin